I often say to people, particularly academics, say on the healthcare side, it's all very interesting, but if nobody ever gets treated as a result of your work, it might as well not have existed. It could be perfectly good, but you know, have you actually got it deployed? And that's where the pleasure is in seeing real prototypes being made, real product, engagement with real industry partners, and ultimately the translation to real market use. Neil Crabb is the chief executive of Frontier IP Group, a UK-based commercialization firm. And he joins us today to talk about why the firm expanded into Portugal, why it's important that there are many different models of university tech transfer out there, and why Frontier IP takes a cluster-based approach to its portfolio rather than a sector-based one. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. To start things off, can you maybe give us a bit of an overview of what Frontier IP does? Yeah, sure. So we're uh, quoted on the uh, London Stock Exchange. We are focused entirely on the commercialization of intellectual property, primarily from the university sector. Importantly, we actually do the commercialization rather than being an investor. So there are many companies in the market, their primary activity is the provision of capital to the space. We actually engage very early, even including pre-incorporation and onwards, and act kind of in, in loco parentis until the companies are spin-outs are, are grown up enough to do everything for themselves, if you like. And we do that in return for a founding stake in those spin-outs. Okay. You've just had a pretty great financial year. I think you released your annual report a few weeks ago when we're recording this. Numbers are up year on year, pretty much. I think the fair value of your portfolio increased by nearly £6 million despite the pandemic in Q4. What do you attribute that growth to? So... I think there are a few things. First, I don't think we got caught up in overvaluation. So there's been a phenomenon in the market of unicorns, which you'll have read about. And you know, unicorns only came yeah, into yeah, the investment yeah. dictionary in 2013. And now we've got hundreds of them around everywhere. So we, we, we've never really been caught up in, I think, in overvaluation. So that's the first bit is if you get a correction in the market. The second issue I would say is that actually, I have a suspicion that overall, our portfolio is a net beneficiary of the combination of COVID and the measures that have been taken politically to support it. So on the COVID front, we have, for example, a vaccine company in the portfolio. Well, clearly, uh, a global pandemic, while it is clearly distressing for many and a health level distressing for all, is the most favorable economic background, if you like, or development background for a vaccine company. And then equally, we've seen political measures being taken to enable companies to cope with the stresses that clearly have been caused by COVID. And so, for example, we've had three companies in the portfolio that have participated in the government's future fund. Well, that fund only existed because there was a pandemic. So there are some cases where you get measures that we are seeing that we're able to um, take benefit from. And I think also there's probably a second tier effect that is less obvious. So there are healthcare ones that are just clear, vaccine companies and others. But then beyond that, certain aspects of infrastructure have been highlighted to be exposed really by what's gone on. So for example, we have a logistics software company in the portfolio. Well, if you roll the clock back you know, before the pandemic, your success in logistics was probably your ability to implement just-in-time manufacturing and minimize stock in the supply chain you'd probably get fired for that today because everybody has suddenly realized that actually the supply chains are becoming less certain. So there's an opportunity where that company has seen new opportunities because of COVID, because people have suddenly realized that when they're not steady state, there are more things to worry about. So 
it's a blend of benefits to the portfolio. I think just also we've got several companies in the portfolio that are reaching important inflection points as they grow up, and that's beginning to flow through into valuations as well. That's helpful. And I suppose the other side of the equation is costs, and we've kept costs quite tightly under control in our own business as well. And you know, profit is the net of the gains you're making offset by the cost to incur those gains. So I think you know, we've got both sides of the equation under fairly tight control. You've mentioned the boxing group there as so kind of a, a clear winner, if that's the right term, in the pandemic. How has the pandemic affected you more broadly? Are you still spinning out companies? Are you still investing? Our primary focus is on really driving the portfolio that we've got currently. There is definitely more support that is okay. needed as a function of the pandemic and its impacts. We've put quite a lot of effort into making sure that we take best practice um, or challenges that emerge from one company and make sure the rest of the portfolio are aware of them and, and the best way to respond. So there's more of that kind of sharing of process. Maybe there's more soft support as well, where you know we've had a couple of cases where staff have been furloughed, for example, and can we step in and, and help still keeping the commercial piece moving on while maybe technical development is on hold because there aren't access to physical facilities, for example. So there's an emphasis more on that support to investment. Primarily, we invest our resources, not our money, but we did raise money actually in July to allow us to be a little bit more supportive of the portfolio of companies. So I mentioned the government's future fund. That's an excellent initiative in the UK, but it does require matching money, which we've contributed a piece as part of the process. So there's a blend of things going on. I think across the balance, more emphasis on the, the existing Although, for example, we did announce one project with Cambridge University where they'd got an interesting piece of technology around something called origami DNA, which is used to deliver actives. Good technology, but they weren't quite sure where it might be applied. So we jointly with them sourced grant funding where they are funded to develop the research. And we found the first potential application, in this case in gingivitis. And we're funded to help engage with potential partners on that technology while they're funded to do the development. So we are doing new things. And it's certainly not that we're up for business, far from it. But in the very short term, we are extremely keen to make sure that we support the existing portfolio thoroughly. That makes perfect sense. You've mentioned a few different companies already there. And I think you call them clusters, four different clusters that you invest in. AI, big data, engineered materials, food, agritech, and then pathogens, cell imaging. Did that come about organically? Did you set out to invest in those specific four areas? It's an interesting thing. So traditionally, people think about you know life sciences or fintech or whatever. They think about sectors. Yeah. The rationale behind the cluster-based thinking was to recognize that our primary input is not the underlying technology, but to work out how you scale it. Okay. So academics are often good at either publishing a paper or making one of something. And if they're making one of something, maybe it's in a batch process. Whereas when you get to industry, they're worrying about scalability. Can I make lots of them? Perhaps it's continuous flow rather than batch. They're perhaps worried more about the cost per unit than the absolute maximization of performance. It's a slightly different set of drivers. And within that, I mean, you mentioned materials as one of our clusters to give you a feel there. You know, a particle that's being scaled up doesn't know whether it's a pharmaceutical, a food ingredient or a ceramic. True. (laughs) Um, It might still go through a spray drying process. Yeah. So so there's more commonality in that scale up around spray drying than there is 
around the particular sector that they're in. It doesn't matter which sector they're in. It matters how you get from making one in a batch process to many on a continuous flow process. Similarly, if you look at the AI software field, academics might have been good at producing, let's say, an algorithm, but the customer says, can I have that through Amazon Web Services as a full service you know, with support yeah. and such like? So that scalability, it's not the physical scalability that you see in a process technology, but it still requires conversion. And that's something that the academic is inexperienced or, or not interested or not equipped to do. So again, it's not, is that fintech or is it healthcare? No, the challenge is the same. How do I enable it to be delivered as a service when I started out with something that perhaps ran on a PC as a, a desk-based application and not even an application, probably an algorithm with you know lacking all the wrappers of a full product? Yeah, that makes sense. Did you always want to target those kinds of specific clusters or did it just turn out that you, you ended up with these? So I think we naturally sort of evolved and then the question was put to us, okay, so how do you communicate this externally? So having done it, okay, we're doing it organically, but what is it we're doing and how do I explain it? How is it different? So it really happened. We found that we were learning in one area. I mean, I mentioned, for example, the spray drying piece. So I was in one meeting with one company and they said, well, why are you spray drying? Why not deliver a wet product? And the same thing has occurred in a completely different sector elsewhere because I guess we had natural areas of focus, but at some point it became more obvious that by formally defining them, you end up both understanding the processes more, but also ending up with repeat industry partners as well, which is the other piece of the equation. And if you talk the language of scale up that they are struggling with, it's a lot easier to communicate than if you're talking investment language. That's how they think. You know, they don't think about what's the valuation. They think about how do I make lots of them? So you need to be familiar with that challenge. So it was very much a process of evolution as opposed to starting out with a cunning master plan as to how we were going to do all this. And within that also, we then said there are certain things that we are not going to do. So for example, we don't do things that go direct to consumer typically because we're not experts in how you would build brands. And that takes a lot of money anyway to do that. We don't do fintech because of what we define as iceberg risk. There are too many things out there. How do we know what we're doing is differentiated? So we tend to be towards things that are physical sciences, healthcare, food, whatever, you know, real world products or software, but in supporting real world products rather than in consumer related or services related technologies. That makes sense. One of the things that I've always found most intriguing about Frontier IP, or certainly in recent years, is the fact that you expanded into Portugal, which is probably not on too many people's radars. Why Portugal and what's that experience been like so far? Portugal, partly again through one project and we'd hired a Portuguese onto the team and we got talking to some of the people there. It wasn't, again, a, a deliberate plan. And then we were talking to the DIT, part of the UK government, and they were saying they'd had approaches from Portuguese universities to see if they could access UK university IP commercialization expertise. So okay. there was a, a demand-led piece from Portugal. And Portugal has some very good technology, but it, I don't think they would mind me saying they are they have a less developed infrastructure to support the commercialization of that technology. And for me, it was the same time zone. We had people who already spoke Portuguese <laughs> Always on good. the team. Well it, well, it matters. I mean, I think people ignore yeah. this cultural aspect, but at the end of the day, I could, you know, we have a good relationship with Plymouth, 
And we've done a number of spin-outs from there. But I can probably be in Lisbon as quickly as I can be in, or before COVID, I could be in Lisbon as quickly as I could be in Plymouth. Lithography wasn't a, a constraint. I think as well, there were certainly some areas where we saw, I mean, for example, we have one spin-out around cellulose and we have some licensed technologies there as well. There are certain areas where they are very strong. You say, well, why cellulose in Portugal? Well, they have the world number one cork company, the world number three cork company, the world number three paper company. Don't be surprised when you find good cellulosic research in Portugal, perhaps better than the UK, because there's a history of the base material being there. It was clear to us that there might be certain technologies that had good reason to be strong there. Same in the energy space, you know, it's sunny, windy and wet, which are generally things you look for around the renewable space, you know. So it seemed to us that it had a good fit. I think the longest running treaty in the world is between Portugal and the UK as well. There's a long history of trading relationships between Portugal and the UK and and a common acceptance of each other's mutual strengths. And for us, it was demand-led too. So for all those reasons, it seemed worth experimenting. We've just put our first permanent employee on the ground there. It's been interesting, actually, one thing that is worth noting, people wanting to deal with us didn't want to deal with us because we were Portuguese, rather because we brought expertise from outside of Portugal. It's been quite important to say, well, we're not just going to put everybody there because part of the reason they they want to deal with it is is so that we bring in the wider perspective of, you know, the UK experience. So we're seeing a hybrid operating model there where we'll have people on the ground, but also importantly, access to local teams in the UK. Interesting. It sounds like Portugal is a perfect match. Would you ever consider expanding to other countries? So we have two spin-outs from Cambridge University in the graphene space that have corresponding partners in Italy already. So that's been interesting. And again, it's the sort of thing that happens for natural evolution, but that's led us to looking more closely at that market. What I don't see us doing is, I know the US or Australia or whatever, for that simple reason that you can't engage on the same time zone in the same way. I think also markets like the US are probably more efficient anyway. So we're very keen to understand what do we think we're bringing to the table? Because we're not the right partner if we're not bringing something to the table. I and mean, I think the US has a much more established model. Australia, the time zone is just too far out, if you like. China's an interesting place, but it's going its own path. So we'll certainly see interactions of business-wise there, but it's not clear that our core model would make sense. There. And I think the other thing is that we are very focused on industry partnerships. So for example, we have a good relationship with Bosch. They've talked a little bit about publicly as well. And obviously, they're a European-based in their footprint. I think there are there are other good partners here as well that would fit that base. You want to, you want to marry up good IP where it's accessible to you with good industry partners, ideally where you've got repeat relationships. And if you can bring that together as a combined ecosystem and then map that onto funding locally as well, then that's really the recipe that we're focused on. I, I mean, I'm sure other solutions are definitely available for other ways of doing things, but we're very focused on what works repeatedly for us. That's very BBC of you. Other commercialization firms are available. <laughs> well, uh, no, but it's uh... important because uh, actually I think <laughs> yeah. our main base is in Cambridge. I think if you, if you were to, Andy Neely there, who's in charge of co- commercialization for the whole university, he's, he's open in saying, you know, they want a diverse ecosystem. But it isn't about finding the solution. It's about enabling multiple solutions so that the right one is available. You know, this isn't one monolithic thing, university IP commercialization. There are different solutions that should work or be available depending on the needs and and requirements of the mapping the individual piece of intellectual property to the specific user needs. On that note, where do you see 
the UK ecosystem today. Is there anything obvious that's missing or that could be improved? Well, I mean, I think we've got a very good base. I mean, I think we've got, you know, over 200,000 academics upwards of coming up to a sort of 9 billion a year of investment in universities alone in research and industry is a, a bigger number than that again. On the other hand, globally, I think Nature published a paper, for example, showing that only a quarter of top peer-reviewed research was replicable by industry. So clearly, wow. that's a scary number, and even worse, in, in, I think in the same paper, but it was saying that only half of academics could reproduce their own research, never mind anybody else's. So, um, <laughs> so, so that challenge is how do we get that metric improved? That's not just a UK problem. If you're an industry buyer... How do we improve getting the right IP in a validated form to the right industry player? And that's also complex because there are 6,000 roughly companies globally that turn over a billion dollars or more. So not unicorns. I'm talking about companies with real business. doesn't matter who you put in a room. We probably can't even name the 6,000. So there are over 200 academic institutions in the UK, 200,000 academics, you know, 6,000 really large scale and that ignores even the tier beneath that users you know nobody really knows who all the users are and when those users see something published there's only a one in four chance it does what it says on the tin in the context of their industry application so remember when we say replicable by industry that doesn't mean the academic research is invalid it just means it doesn't map to the industry need so really reducing that friction now the uk everybody's in part of trying to solve that same equation really I think in the UK, we've got a better funding position than continental Europe, although maybe, uh, well, definitely a worse funding position than the best parts of the US. It's not homogenous in the US. Silicon Valley or the other coast clearly have much deeper pockets and resources than we do, but we're better off than continental Europe, I would say. So there is some ongoing improvement to come, I think, to the funding environment, if I put it that way. I'm actually more worried about this translation issue because if you're in a business development role in industry and there's only a one in four chance that you see something that that you think might be applicable to you is going to work, that means that the one winner has to pay for the three failures as well as justifying itself. And I think we've got to work hard to try and improve that equation collectively because you're competing against internal developed solutions as well. You've got to make sure for industry that that equation is compelling. So the way we try and tackle that is get to very early prototype of working products so people can see something and interact with it, and because that significantly reduces the risk of failure, that early prototyping. I mean, generally, you've seen it in, in software and such like with minimum viable product and thing being a thing, but we're very keen on try and engage early with an industry partner so you understand what their need is, not what the academic thinks the need is and then having got that input try and build one early so that you can prove that it's achievable and that may not be the finished product it may not be the scaled product but it at least makes sure that you're then at the right point of engagement and usually industry knows what to do at that point by the way usually you know if you say to them here's one now can you make lots of them they're much better at that if they start with a tangible point that they can recognize give them an academic paper and say on you go it's all yours. And that's not going to work in general. Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. Does that partnership with the with industry, does that happen before incorporating the spin out? Where in the timeline do you usually find a potential partner? 
I see it as sort of an, an osmotic process, really, where you start with limited industry engagement. You want to know what would you need to say yes, or what's your particular pain point. That's not a full partnership. And then you iterate to build towards that. And at some point, it becomes a more formal engagement. And you know, right at the start, the majority of the input is the academic. Somewhere in between, it's the industry interaction. And at the end, it's primarily the, the industry player themselves. And we see ourselves as, if you like, that osmotic membrane, to borrow a chemistry idea, sitting in between, where the gradient is switching from academic at the start to industrial at the end of the process. You're trying to translate from what an academic understands to industry being able to respond to continuously through the process, but with the emphasis moving towards the industrial, the further along the journey that you go. What point it's right to contract and formally consummate that will depend on the underlying technology and the nature of the relationship. But we do seek industry input as early as we can in the process. That's not the same as seeking to do a deal. And again, I think sometimes people are very transactional about this. We try to understand early on what would you need and and not just, you know, what trial would you do, but within that trial, what answer would you need to say yes? Try and understand where the performance needs to be, not just what the data is that they want, but what they would judge as successful within that data set. That's very interesting. On a powerful personal note, you've been with Frontier IP for over a decade now. What got you into this? What's made you stick around as a sector in general and, and Frontier particularly? So my, my personal journey started in back office in the city and software and such like, you know, IT related areas. I then became a fund manager in the mid 90s. And that was sort of a boom period for technology companies in the UK coming to market. But by and large, quite a lot of those were disappointing in their subsequent performance because they failed to make that transition from the academic to the industrial. Quite often, the academics were left running the show. And that isn't what they personally set out. That wasn't the start of their personal journey, but it was sort of the view of, oh, we want them committed. So, you know, they need to be engaged in running it, which is an odd thing because it doesn't strike me as their competence. And at some point, you, you sort of saw these repeat failures. So it wasn't a master plan at the start, but there's been a gradual migration. I co-founded a company in 97 that floated in 2000 called Sigma Capital Group. And that was doing property as well as this technology stuff. I mean, that confused investors, but it also meant a lack of focus internally. So we decided that the right thing was to separate the two out. And as a result, Frontier span out from Sigma, which I founded. And at first, I wasn't sure how involved I wanted to be. But actually, the more I thought about it, there's a really big and important problem at the heart of what we're all engaged in here. There's huge amounts being spent on the research side. There's massive need for products. You've only got to look actually at the pandemic and the amount that is vested in finding a healthcare-based solutions to what's become a major economic problem to realize this is really important and it needs to be done well. And the hope was that in our way, back to my comment about other solutions are available, but in our way, we could find a way to enable those technologies that we focused on to be more successful than they would otherwise have been. There's obviously the business aspect of making the business perform, but it's just great to see these really interesting technologies and actually see them coming across to get to market. You know, I often say to people, particularly academics say on the healthcare side, it's all very interesting, but if nobody ever gets treated as a result of your work, it might as well not have existed. It could be perfectly good, but you know, have you actually got it deployed? And that's where the pleasure is in seeing 
real prototypes being made, real product, engagement with real industry partners, and ultimately the translation to real market use away from the day-to-day of running the business. That's actually the joy of it and the motivation of it. You know, that's a, that's a, an important thing, I think. That's a, yeah, wonderful thought that seems to permeate pretty much everyone who is in this job, does it? Not so much for the money. It's all about the impact and, and getting solutions out there that can help save lives. And Yeah, it's really important. It is financially successful for its sustainability. But uh, no, there, there are easier ways to make money than doing university tech commercialization, I think, or certainly quicker ways to make money. My final question is my favorite one, and it's usually the one that people hate. What's your favorite company so far? What's a, been a personal highlight where you thought this is a technology that I'm really glad is out there? Yeah, I, I was aware you might ask this. Um, so, and, and I get it all the time from <laughs> uh, actually from from investors. It's like, well, which one's going to be the big winner in our business context? That's harder to judge because we own different percentages in each one, and they're at different stages with different starting valuations. So, actually the relative scale of success may have different impacts on our business. But also I've learned that it's really hard to pick winners in advance. You may know that a company is going well, but you don't quite know how well it will win. And that's to do with actually the distribution of success versus failure. So you may be familiar with investor adage about, you know, 20% in a venture fund work and the rest don't. We're trying to modify that percentage. But the bottom line is there is a tale of failure. And then the winners do well because they compound over time so if i may i might pick more than one i'm happy to answer your question but i'm not happy to pick, go for it. pick one so if that's go all right it. i'll explain because they are quite different in, in their dynamics that's fine so the most mature thing in the portfolio is a company called Excientia, and they've signed uh, you know around a billion dollars now of milestone deals with the pharmaceutical industry and they're using ai for drug discovery and the, the challenge in the pharmaceutical industry is basically that it takes too long and costs too much so there's a real problem around making the whole process both quicker and more efficient. And that matters economically, but obviously it also matters from a health perspective. And we've seen the fantastic efforts this year to condense you know, the timescale to getting both vaccines and treatments to market as emphasizing that health aspect. Obviously, we were involved right from when they were founded. And to see that go from absolute startup to, I think, genuinely one of the global leaders in the, in the space and continue to outperform and have deals now with Crystal Myers and Sanofi and Roche and whatever, you know, that there's just a, a great pleasure in seeing them grow in the way that they are. And what you know, of course, from the this sort of distribution curve of results is that the winners tend to win disproportionately. So if I just think about it from a shareholder point of view, once something gets ahead of the pack, I, mean, I would say to the team, I'm not sure what it's worth, but I would never bet against the chief exec that runs it because, you know, each year it does better than you expect. That doesn't guarantee continued outperformance, but it's correlated to outperformance. So that's one. And I pick others that are highlights. We've got a company called Pulsive, who was originally involved in getting more power out of solar panels, but now is also applying its technology more broadly to energy efficiency. There's a lot of fuss about you know the green economy and reducing carbon. Sometimes I think people lose sight of which things move the needle the most towards that aim. So... Once we found the technology could be applied to energy efficiency, there are enormous amounts of power already used, frequently inefficiently. So, you know, anybody watching us on a computer, they'll have a laptop charger. It's inefficient. How do you know it's inefficient? Because it gets warm. You know, they'll have a light on so they can see what's going on. Same thing. It's inefficient because lots of the energy goes to heat, not to light. 
probably they'll have their phone by them. Again, that's charged inefficiently. Same issue as a laptop. Go and look at your fridge or your TV or whatever. So the ability to potentially improve the efficiency with which that power is used in all of those day-to-day devices could have an enormous impact. It might not be as sexy as, I know, a brand new offshore wind turbine, but it actually has a bigger ability to mediate the issue of our carbon footprint because so much energy is used already. So something like that is really interesting. And we've been doing a lot of work with Bosch, which we've begun to talk about publicly with that. And there are others that we can't talk about. I think that could have a real impact. And we like things like where there's a a clear mapping to, you know, we've got working product already and such like. Genuinely, that's a thriving area, I would say, that we see application and could really make a, a difference. And then I suppose the obvious one to pick is, you know, the vaccine group. When that was set up, it was focused with zoonotic diseases. And back in January of 2018, we had an event for Frontier in Lisbon at the uh, UK embassy, where we had 70 odd people from the UK and Portugal. And the academic was down to do a talk on pandemics and how they arise in animals. And I ended up having to give his talk. And the reason was he was summoned to see DARPA in the US about this issue. And we now have a multi-million dollar funded program from DARPA looking at Ebola and Lassa fever. But the interesting thing was, unfortunately, all of those aspects that we're seeing in the current pandemic, it will come from animals. It will spread by economic connectedness because people fly around. People are underestimating it. There are lots of things that could have been predicted. Looking back, there are far less things that are predicted before they happen correctly. And the genesis for setting that company up was absolutely on the money. And it's now, as we speak, got vaccines in trials for a range of animal diseases, but also for COVID. And literally, we're waiting for the results back from animal trials in the US and just about to start in the UK. So, you know, could make a real world difference to um, what we're seeing going on. But as I say, with an insight, unfortunately, wasn't listened to, actually. I mean, I, the purpose of the talk, we didn't really explain the technology too much, but we talked about the risk. And I had investors in the audience and whatever as well. Unfortunately, it's a human fault. You know, the last really massive outbreak was obviously the Spanish flu, which is 100 years plus ago. Too long ago. Too long ago for people to remember, even though actually we knew it would come again. Now, of course, people are aware of it and will take steps. And in fact, the risk is increasing because we travel around more now. So if that can be ready to play its role in preparedness, and I say having seen the problem, unfortunately, come, not knowing exactly when it would come or how it would come, but knowing that it was coming, it's played out pretty much exactly, unfortunately, as the case that was made at the time. So I would say that's another one that we're watching with close interest. So I've cheated and picked three, but hopefully that's all right because they're for for different reasons. That's fine. I'm quite happy to let people pick a couple. I know it's quite difficult to have one favourite. Yeah, and hopefully it's fairly obvious why. It gives gives quite an insight. Even though I'm at the cold face, I would hope it's fairly obvious why actually, never mind anybody else. I mean, I don't know. Genuinely, I don't know which of those will end up being the one that makes the most difference because they're doing quite different things and they're at different stages. So um, they're all exciting and that's part of the fun of this. But um, We'll continue to watch and help where we can in, as they move forward. Awesome. I think those are really good closing words, unless there's anything else that you wanted to add that we haven't covered. And hopefully that gives people a little bit of insight into um, what we do and our perspective on the space. And hopefully it's a bit of a contribution to the view of how people tackle what is undoubtedly a very important but complex area. I think it does. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Neil. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day for this. No, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it too. <laughs> 
Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Heles. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email thehelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye.